You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. You know, cool. So um, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We are going to be in verse 7 through, 7, 7 through 16 this morning. Um, if you do not have a Bible, there should be one underneath the seat in front of you. And if you do not own a copy of the scriptures in your home, please take that copy with you as a gift from us today. So if you're able, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Again, this is Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro from the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. I'm so glad you're here with us this morning, especially if it is your first time. Thanks for making us a part of your week. My name is Court, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And like Jenna said, we've been, now this is our second week in a series called Life Together. And so Corey preached last week. Corey did a phenomenal job. I want to say a big thank you to him. I thought he did great, uh, kind of opening us up in this series, uh, walking through Ephesians chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6. And so I want to jump right in because we got a lot of work to do. 7 through 16, lots of verses, packed full of content, and uh, only a limited amount of time. And so I want to jump right in. Corey mentioned last week that he was preaching about a unity in Christ that is to be maintained. And he kind of alluded to, I would be preaching this week about a unity in Christ that is to be pursued or attained. And so it's important to note before we jump off into this that Both of these sermons are rooted in what Christ has done and what Christ has won for us in the gospel. So when I say attained, I want you to think like, it's not that you're jumping straight from the ground uh, and and trying to earn things, but like uh, the gospel is the trampoline that helps us to to attain, uh, to jump into what it is that that Jesus has already won for us. So, So if last week we talked about, we're called to maintain togetherness. Hence the series Life Together, right? It says you're one body, one spirit, one baptism, one Lord, one God and Father of all who's in all and through all. You know, okay, so if we're called to maintain that kind of togetherness, um, Jesus has also won against the powers of darkness and the gospel's gonna be going forward and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. So here's what I kind of wanna frame it as. Last week, the church is one people in Christ because of the gospel. We 
and we maintain that unity. What a message that was for our time, right? The church of the living God is one people, no matter where you come from, what background you have, what socioeconomic status you have, what race or ethnicity you are, the church becomes one people underneath God, our Father, and that we maintain that unity by leaning into Jesus, who's made a way for us to be one people. And then this week is, well, if we're one in Christ, we are one in Christ to what end? What's the purpose for that? What are we looking to attain in light of that oneness in Christ? And so we're going to be talking about how the healthy church attains unity. But if we're going to talk about that in any successful rate, we have to start, in my opinion, about talking about if the church is a worthy endeavor for us. Is it worthy in our hearts of time? Is it worthy in our hearts of effort? Is it worthy in our hearts to try to attain something unique in the church of God? And so I want to start in the book of John chapter 17, reading verses 15 through 21, uh, just briefly, and kind of maybe frame the church and, and the unity of the church in a way that gets us, gets our gears turning to think we should be about this. Because if we don't think, yeah, I'm really passionate about the unity of the church because Jesus died for her and he has a vision for her, then my fear is that we'll, we'll jump into what Paul says about the church here and it's just kind of like, yeah, that makes sense, that's good, it's practical, we can go home. But there's much more to it than that. So this is Jesus' prayer, John chapter 17, in his Olivet Discourse. It's called the High Priestly Prayer of Jesus. As he prays through the corridors of time for you, He's praying for the saints. He's praying for his disciples that are right there with him. And he's praying, he actually says it, for everyone who will believe in the name through them. So that's you and me. And listen to what he prays, starting in verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, the disciples, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Listen to this. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, meaning the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that's us, that they may be all, look at this word, one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So this is Jesus' high priestly prayer. We are looking to attain, maintain, and attain a unity in the church that is likened unto the unity that God the Son has with God the Father, and that as we imperfectly but progress toward that end, that the world increasingly sees the gospel as glorious and comes to know Jesus as who he truly said he was. Or shorthand for that would be, we ought to be praying that we would reflect the unity of God to the world so that the world would see Jesus as he truly is. And so if that's the starting line, before we jump into Paul's words, I want to say this. The church is not merely an institution that we join when we have kids because we don't want our kids to be in jail later. <laughs> okay, we have all can resonate with that, hopefully. None of us want that, but, but that's not why we join the church, hopefully. The church is not a place that good people attend on Sunday mornings and then bad people sometimes if they feel bad enough, right? The church is instead God's glorious, gracious antidote to the madness of our fallen world. It's an alternative to this whole worldly system that's just falling apart all around us. It's a beacon of light in the world and the world is grappling around in the dark and here's the church supposed to shine forth. It's the pillar of truth in a world that's drowning in falsehood and conjecture. The church is a unified people full of grace in a world that's weighed down by judgment weighed down by criticality, weighed down by, merit, by malice. The church is this welcome 
paradise of forgiveness that's planted in the desert of accusation. That's, that's what we're kind of dwelling in. And if you're a member of God's church, then we're unified together as sinners saved by grace, now saints who are conforming our lives to Christ, who is the ultimate truth. Paul calls him the head of the body, the truth, the ultimate. And this is, of course, juxtaposed against a world that's divided against one another, seeking salvation their own way. The church says, no, there's only one way, and it's in Jesus, and we pursue him. And I want to say the church is not perfect, and providence is certainly no exception to this, okay? But it's worthy of our pursuit. It's worthy of our time. It's worthy of our effort. It's worthy of our chasing. And so what I want to do before we jump into Paul's words here about the church is pray, God, give us a burden to be that kind of church. And if as he does that, as God does that, these words will come alive, I promise you. But let's pray first. God, help us before we jump in and make us long for that, okay? If you'll bow your heads, I'll lead us. Oh, Father, I... I'm so very burdened reading this text because there's so much life here. But Lord, I know that my heart of hearts gets content in all the wrong things sometimes. And so I pray on behalf of my friends and those under the sound of my voice, would you give us a burden to see your church as you see your church? Lord Jesus, in your mind's eye, when you were on the cross, the church that you saw that you were willing to die for, would you give us that vision for the church? God, would you wash away that vision of the church, of all of our mistakes, all of our imperfections, all of our disappointments, all the areas where the church has failed us. Lord Jesus, help us to turn our eyes to you and give us your vision for your bride, your people, that we can long for even when we fail. And God, give us a courage to grapple with your words this morning in a way that brings life to each and every one of us, we ask. And we ask it in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's jump in. So we got, let's start with verses seven through 10 here. Paul jumps in after what Corey was talking about last week about the unity that we have in the gospel. And he says, but grace was given to each one of us, verse seven, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, and, and, and he's quoting the Psalms here, when he ascended, he being Jesus on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Verse nine, in saying that he ascended, what does it mean? but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now I want to pause here and say this nine, verses nine through 10 are in parentheses. There could not be a parentheses that makes more, I guess, contra, makes it more controversial to preach through than those parentheses. Because what he said there, there's so much theological disagreement around that. I don't even know really how to grapple with it with what we have to talk about this morning. But here's what I want to say. The big idea is that in the gospel, we are assured that Christ has conquered our enemies, freed us from sin, guilt, and shame, and that he has gifted us by his grace with everything that we need in order to live a life pleasing to God together. That's the big idea of these few verses. Now let's break this down. The first uncontroversial thing that that Paul says here is that Jesus ascended. So that the ascension of Jesus, as Jesus heads up into Uh, the right hand of God and now is interceding for us should give us great confidence because when Jesus ascended, he not only pleads with us and intercedes with us on our behalf to his father, but he also dispensed gifts to us and those gifts are uniquely to be used for his glory, for the building up of the body of Christ. And he, he won this for us on the cross. So the ascension of Jesus, no one really has any issues with Paul's words here. But the bigger questions are surrounding what does it mean that Jesus descended? And I just want to make a quick couple comments. Lots of opinions here. Does this refer to Jesus' incarnation? 
Jesus descended from heaven to earth into Bethlehem, right? And this is him descending into the earth. So he had to descend before he ascended, right? Okay. Does it refer to him, uh, Jesus descending into the earth through his burial? So Jesus died, then he was buried. So he's like, like Jonah would go into the belly of the whale, so Jesus would go into the earth, right? So the burial. Um, Or is it like the Apostles' Creed alludes to, that Jesus actually descended into hell for for him to assert his authority, assert his power, assert all of that over the spiritual powers of darkness, and then to ascend on high after he won all that victory over death, hell, and the grave? Here's what I'm going to say. My opinion, yes to all. (laughs) Yes to all. Now, you could disagree with this, but I want to say, but at a minimum, we have to agree with at least, at bare minimum, the first two right? We got to agree that this idea that Jesus descended is about the incarnation, about Jesus entering into human history. Um, I'm, a, I'm a charismatic, and so therefore I'm probably going to lean on the, he went down into hell. Um, I like the idea of that, and I also think it's theologically sound, but let's continue on. The overarching point is this, Jesus accomplished for us in the gospel through his descension and ascension. He, what, the result of the gospel is that he liberates us from sin and darkness, and the that as he ascends, he endows us through his Holy Spirit with gifts, unique gifts. Everything we're going to talk about this morning is made available to to us in Jesus and through Jesus. That's why Paul starts here. There's nothing we're going to talk about that we get to like work our way into. It's not like we get to be these Kung Fu spirit masters that work our way into being gifted, right? It's not like Kill Bill where she's got that like the guy with the beard and she just works really hard to be a super warrior and that's how we become super warriors in Christ. That's not it. Everything that we have as Christians, particularly our giftings in this text, is given to us by God through Christ because of his grace. And we can be certain of this because the Spirit's filled us. So why does the church owe its allegiance to Jesus? It's because it owes its very existence to Jesus. (laughs) This is why we say we want to cling to Jesus because we don't really even exist without him. All right. Now, what does that mean for you? I want to to make this comment because I think it's essential. The depths of your brokenness and sin and unworthiness does not preclude you from being gifted by Christ. So you might say, well, I'm not really gifted, Court. And I would say, if you're a Christian, that's anathema. That's not true. Well, I don't really have anything unique about me gifted in the church. And that's not true. If you're a Christian, then you've been gifted by Christ. And here's why I know that. Because Christ gifted you. It wasn't about your abilities or uniqueness or snowflakeness or perfect, you know, combination of, of both, you know, winsome and good-looking Jesus gifted you because he loves you and extended his grace to you. And this is incredibly chocked full of something that we all desperately need, which is purpose. That means that if he gave you gifts, it's for a reason. It means if he's decided that you're his and he wants to dispense to you something like a gift, that means that that gift's going to be utilized for his glory and now you got something to be up to. And I think we all long to know how we fit into the world and the uniqueness of our life. How can we do something that's meaningful? And, and this is often hindered by our experience in a fallen world. We experience internal obstacles, external obstacles, and then we get kind of depressed and discouraged. But Paul says here that Jesus has won over all of our external and internal enemies, and then he's gifted us with his grace. And in these unique gifts that he's given us, we get to serve him freely and openly and supernaturally. Okay, now the question that I want you to wrestle with, because we have to get to the back end of this, is not have I been gifted? Because I hope that you see in this text the answer to that is yes. If you are in Christ, you have been. That's not the question. The question is, how have you been gifted? Not if. How have you been gifted? And here's why it's important for you to answer that question this morning, and I'm not going to spend much time on it, but it's because the whole church will always need what the whole church can offer. 
me say that again. The whole church will always need what the whole church can offer. And what Paul will say in other texts that we don't have time to get into is that when one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. And when one part of the body rejoices, the whole body rejoices. Therefore, if the whole church isn't functioning properly together, then the whole church is missing something and is hurting in some way. So the first step has to be not, am I gifted? That's from the enemy. But how am I gifted that I might be a good steward of that which God has gifted me with? Okay. I'm going to let that question sit, and I'm going to move on. Let's go. Verse 11. Paul's going to start with leaders here. So, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. What did he give these leaders gifts for? To equip the saints for the work of ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, this is important because Paul is underscoring a key doctrine of the faith that we've lost. It's called the priesthood of the saints. The priesthood of the saints. The priesthood of the saints is a doctrine that the new covenant sprinkled in Christ's blood has now given us access as all Christians into priesthood, into a sainthood, into an engagement in the life of God that the old covenant didn't offer. One way to look at this would be we are no longer looked to leaders alone to meet our spiritual needs, but instead leaders in the church in the new covenant are called to equip the saints as a priesthood to meet one another's spiritual needs and to reach the world with the power of God with the provided spirit that is within us. All of us together do that. In the Old Testament, you'd see the spirit of God would rush upon leaders, right? Rush upon David and David would fight Goliath and he would defeat Goliath on behalf of all of the Israelites who are, who are chilled and, and shaking, right? And we all, are, are, we all kind of lean into that and we try to say, how can I be like David? But the new covenant actually teaches us that Jesus was the one who was like David, who ran in and defeated Goliath and then poured his spirit on all of Israel so that we together, we together, we together would do the work of ministry and become the priesthood of the saints. In the book of Exodus, um, there's a scripture in chapter 19 where God says, if you obey my voice, you'll be my treasured possession among all the peoples and you will be to me like a kingdom of priests. So this idea was even in the old covenant. But here's what you need to remember. The very next chapter, God comes to visit the children of Israel and they all shove their heads in the sand because they're terrified of him and they elect Moses to be the one who is the intermediary. So they say, Moses, why don't you talk with God? You be the priest. We'll hang out here. You just tell us what he says. Now we all know that goes poorly, right? He goes and gets the 10 commandments. They decide to build a calf and they do some pagan dancing around it. And you know, listen, I'm not a Baptist. You can do unpagan dancing, but this was different. And they do some weird dancing around it in the fire. And then Moses comes down and is like, what have you guys been doing? You know, and they were just all worshiping Baal because they got their intermediary up there talking with God. Okay. So it's always been God's plan to have a kingdom of priests. But until Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit falls on the church, it hasn't been culminated and fulfilled. Because when the Holy Spirit actually fills the believers in Acts chapter number two, Christ becomes our final mediator between God and man. And we become a priesthood, a kingdom of saints. So church leaders, according to Paul, are no longer elected officials who are called to mediate the presence of God. Leaders are gifted by God to equip the people of God to do the work of ministry that the select few were doing in the old covenant. Does this start to make sense? That's what it means to be a kingdom of priests. This is what it means to be the church of the living God, that all of us are priests unto our God. John Piper made a comment. This was like 20 years ago, by the way. He said, I'm concerned that the priesthood of all believers has defaulted into the priesthood of no believers. That's interesting, right? Well, how do you go from one extreme to the other? It's kind of like if, uh, I don't know, if, if everything is 
sweet, then nothing is sweet, you know? If everything's hot, then nothing is hot. And so sometimes we just say, well, it's the priesthood of all believers, and we use that as a way to kind of deflect rather than embrace. That's what John Piper's talking about. He followed that up with this statement, and this is not really to get into uh, Catholicism versus Protestantism, but I want you to lean into this statement because I, I really thought it was good. He said, Martin Luther did not dethrone the Pope as much as the, he lifted and raised the common saint. I thought, wow. It's like, what was the act that Martin Luther was trying to point to in the 95 Thesis that he nailed to the door? He was trying to say the common saint has access to God through Christ. So he's trying to lift the people of God back up into their place. They deserve to have access to the word of God. They should be able to read the word of God, ingest the word of God, pray, and pray directly to the Father through Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. That was what he was aiming at. And he was saying, this has been true forever. We gotta get back to this. And so Paul here says in Ephesians 4, we need church leaders, but we need church leaders who fight for the priesthood of the saints. We don't need church leaders who want to shine brightly and everybody else follow. We don't need church leaders who want to say, don't worry, guys, I'll be spiritual for you. Don't worry, you don't need to know the Bible because I know it so well for all of us. Don't worry, you don't need to pray because I fast and pray more than anyone. The church is only going to shine as brightly as each and every member in the church of Jesus Christ shines by the power of the Spirit. And this is essential. Godly leaders know this, and therefore they spend their time and they aim their time at equipping the whole church to meet the moment rather than trying to play the hero themselves. The best leaders say, it's not my job to stand in Christ's place. It's my job to call us all alongside to be the body and to hold fast to the head where he stands alone. Leaders aren't heroes, Jesus is, at least in the church. And so when we forget this, we try to play the hero. Hey, have you guys seen this recently in the news? Things go awry really quickly in the church when we have heroes that are leaders rather than leaders that are pointing to the hero. See the difference? Okay. So the whole body of believers make up the ministry team according to Paul, and now he's gonna talk to you about how that works. So let's continue on verses 12 through 16. Actually, let's just start in verse 11 because it's kind of in the middle of a thought. So he gives the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith, there's that word again, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Verse 15, but rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So that last line, Paul gives you the result of the healthy church that is attaining unity by engaging with all of the gifts God has given and working properly to hold fast to the head. He says this, when the church ministers to one another, then the body grows and builds itself up in love. And by doing so, we attain a supernatural unity that displays the glory of God to everyone who will see. Now, I wanna talk a little bit about growth and what he means here. I think that we, we see both in the book of Acts and also an experience that growth happens in two ways, namely in the gospel. The first is that growth happens in gospel maturity. And the second is that growth happens through gospel multiplication. 
So we both grow internally and externally. And here's my contention. Those are connected in a way that you cannot, you can't bifurcate the two. You can't make, you can't say I want to grow in multiplication, but I'm not interested in growing in maturity. You can't say we want to be the church that grows in maturity, but we don't really want anybody else because they just mess it up. You guys know what I'm talking about? Am I the only one? You get into home group and you're like, man, we got a really niche thing here, but I don't want, I don't want anybody else to join into it because then you're just going to screw it up. You got your friend circle. I like my friend circle. And listen, I'm not saying you don't need to have friend circles. That's good. It's healthy. It's right. But these two are connected, this idea of gospel maturity and gospel multiplication. And, and here's how they're connected. When Christians mature, people come to know Christ because healthy Christians bear fruit. And bearing fruit is both internal and external. We know the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 is the internal fruit. But we also know that baby Christians being born spiritually is the external fruit. This is why the the early church disciples, from the moment that Acts chapter 2 happens, God sends them out to the ends of the earth. And the very next thing is you start hearing stories like Philip is teleported into the desert in order to baptize the Ethiopian eunuch in a puddle of water. That's what happens when people mature internally. One way to put it is this, to be fruitful is to be life-giving in every sense of the word. Life is welling up in you as you mature, and guess what happens? Life begets life. That's how it works. An example of this is children mature, right? They become adults, and then they have kids of their own. And growth in maturity lends itself to growth in multiplication. Now, I mean, this makes a lot of sense. The church that matures in a healthy manner also multiplies, and it's not from an unholy ambition that that's, that multiplication happens, but it's an outflow of a holy love for your neighbor and for God. Okay, but what about immature churches? So, so listen to this, and this is just this is this idea, and I think that I'm right on this after pastoring for as long as I have. When we are inwardly focused and when we're immature as the body, then naturally we can't actually multiply externally. Looks kind of like this. Immature churches fight inwardly among themselves. Mature churches fight outwardly against the powers of darkness. See how this works? So immature churches make it mostly about how we're fighting each other, about carpet color or lighting, about song choice or, you know, whatever. And mature churches say, hey, who cares? There's a big battle going on. Let's go share the gospel. You see how that works? Immature churches permit sinful behavior to distract and divide. And mature churches bring the sin to Jesus and they grow in grace toward one another. So listen, there's two ways you can be distracted by sin. One is to be a Pharisee and just go out hunting everybody among you who's a sinner. Guess what? There's an alert I need to give everyone. You're all sinners. It's true. I know it's offensive, but you can be mad at the Bible. You will sin, offend one another. If you're married, you already did it this morning. (laughs) And so you can either deal with it as a Pharisee and go hunting for it, or you could try to deal with it as, you know, with liberality and licentiousness by saying it doesn't matter which actually just allows it to fester. Paul calls that allowing gangrene to spread through the body, not addressing the disease. Or the mature church does this. They address the sin with the gospel. They bring it to Jesus. They accept that we're forgiven by Christ. They don't hold grudges and they move forward. Immature churches get spend uh, an overt amount of time. They get hamstrung and hindered by personal hurts and personal offenses. But mature churches have grace for offense and personal hurts because they don't expect heaven until Jesus comes back. Mature churches remember that we're in the middle of something, not at the end of it. We're in the middle of something. Guess what? If you don't expect personal hurts, at least at some level, I think that you have an over-realized eschatology. You think that we're already in utopia right now. <laughs> personal offenses, personal hurts, write it down right now, and I could be a prophet for you. I might even be able to say I'm gifted as one. It will happen to you. You might say, it hasn't happened to me. I love Jesus. I love the church. I love everybody. And I'm like, me too. It's on the way for you. 
<laughs> and here's the thing. If we go ahead and accept that that's true and that we're looking forward to something, we're looking forward to Christ making all of that right, then those personal offenses and hurts can be brought to Jesus rather than, rather than allowing them to be the wounds that fester and own us and own one another. And then our relationships, they fray. Now check this out. There are seasons of life for everybody, every church. We just got through the seven churches of Revelation. Did you guys notice Jesus speaks uniquely to each church? It's like he doesn't have the same thing to say to each church, even though themes might overlap. It's because Jesus knows each church uniquely. I believe in every church there are seasons of sowing and seasons of reaping. Seasons of sowing seeds that we might mature in Christ together and seasons of reaping the harvest from that maturity, which looks like external fruit, people coming to know Christ. And every church has different seasons. But here's what I will say, and this is something to consider before we move into the back half of this verse. Jesus is a good shepherd. He sends brand new spiritual babies to churches who have spiritual fathers and mothers that are prepared and equipped to take care of them. That's my prayer for providence. Jesus is no fool. He sends the brand new spiritual babies that are his into a healthy body where there's moms and dads around spiritually who will come along and care for them, not kids who are gonna fight in the playroom. Because babies, when they're babies, don't need their seven-year-old brother to punch them. They need to be nurtured, right? They need to be cared for. And so my prayer for providence is that God begins to make spiritual fathers and mothers of us so that we have that nurturing. We're not ready to fight out the the theological nuances of Ephesians chapter 4 about whether Jesus went into hell or not, but we're actually fathers and mothers that want to bring people alongside and tell them the depths of God's love in this text. Do you see the difference? Okay. Now, what does Paul say? He says, the aim of spiritual maturity is the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, mature manhood, the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, we could talk a long time about all the various ministries and the various gifts that God is pleased to employ in the church. I would encourage you to go to Romans, go to 1 Corinthians, and go towards the back of the book, where G, uh, the back of each letter, where, where Paul is talking about the unique giftings in the body. But here's what I want to say for the sake of time. All of them are meant to result in the same thing, spiritual maturity that bears fruit and builds up. Every gift is about that. Every spiritual gift that's given is about spiritual maturity that bears fruit and builds up one another. If there's a gift in the body that's not aimed at that, then it's not from the Lord. That's not a gift. That's a curse. (laughs) Spiritual maturity that bears fruit and builds up. Okay, now, ladies, I know... It's, you know, some of you probably read this and you're like, why mature manhood, right? I know it happened. You didn't want to say it, but it's true. And I get it because I thought the same thing. Why, you know, why mature manhood? It's not a sexist term here. I think what he's doing is he's talking about a reference to growing up. He's using a reference here. And we shouldn't think of this as self-sufficiency as the goal. Because we're always going to need Jesus. We're always going to need one another. I want you to think of this as a, a movement of maturity from being provided for to being a provider, You get this movement for being protected from being the protector. I think this is why he uses the male uh, pronoun here or the, the male term from being protected to being a protector, from being a spiritual son to being a spiritual father, from being a spiritual daughter to being a spiritual mother. This is what Paul means by mature manhood, the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's this movement of maturity that Paul says that the body, when it's healthy and it's functioning, you move beyond the childhood. You move into being the one who actually provides for the kids. And this is important because Jesus is saying, I've got a lot of babies that I'm bringing into the fold. Are you ready to care for them? Now, moms, there was nothing that could have prepared you for your first baby, right? Like, it's true, isn't it? It's like your heart's in it. You're excited about it. You've read every blog. 
You know, maybe not all of you are like this, but some of you are. You know, you read everything you needed to read. You called people. You talked to them. You went to seminars. You were ready. And then the baby showed up, and you're like, oh, no. It doesn't sleep. It doesn't stop crying when I want it to stop crying. Or something. maybe you had a great baby, and it was like, oh, it's glorious. And then your second one wasn't like that. And you're like, why isn't this one like this one? You know, you wanted it to be more like a Ford car that just like, or like a McDonald's burger that's always the same every time. Even if it ain't great, it's the same. And it didn't work out that way. Jesus is bringing in new spiritual babies into the church, and there's no way to prepare for that except the very thing that moms always do, which is something turns in every mother and that recognition that now I'm going to be the one that cares for this child. And the father has to make this turn too, and it happens a little bit later usually with dads because they're not carrying the baby, right? And so they're just like going to work and like, hey, you know, I'm excited about the baby. But they don't know what they're talking about. None of us do. But the turn happens where we say, this child, I'm responsible. I take personal responsibility to be a protect and to care and to provide. And that's what Paul's leading us into. He says, go, go on from milk, being a child, into being a dad. From being a child into being a spiritual mom. And at the back end here, what I want to say is that Paul defines spiritual maturity here in a specific way, in the terms of truth. In terms of truth. He says in chapter 4, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness in deceitful schemes. He says that the truth of Christ should be so established in our hearts that we're no longer tossed around by worldly narratives. We're no longer derailed by spiritual attacks or even our own human suffering. Instead, Paul says, truth is stability when it's, when it's so sewn in and woven into the fabric of our being that we can stand when it's tough. And I think that this is an intriguing case, and I want to pause here. I wish I had tons more time because I certainly have tons more notes. But let's pause here and ask why he didn't use experience as maturity or as the framing for maturity. Like, isn't salvation a supernatural experience? Can't we all agree with that? Even if you don't have a crazy salvation story, right? Like something happened to us and it's almost inexplicable. Like even if you feel like your conversion story is boring, when you look back, you should be absolutely baffled that you're here or where you are and actually engaging like you are. I know I look back at myself, it's like I know who I was and I know who I am and I'm not sure how I got here. I know what my pursuits were, you know, and now I see myself. It's odd to me to see myself as I am. I have friends I never think that I thought that I would have. I have, you know, desires that I never thought that I would have. I listen to music I never thought I would listen to. Anybody else? Like it's the music you used to make fun of maybe. Maybe you're better than me, but I used to, okay? And so at some level, you have to look back at that and say something happened. There's an experience there. But here's what I want you to remember, that the operative element of our salvation is truth, not experience. The salvation experience and the Christian experience is a result of the human heart being confronted with the living truth in the person of Christ. And the experiences vary at some level, but the truth always remains the same. And the same way that we're saved is the same way that we grow in Christ. Did you know that? The same way you're saved is the same way that you grow, which is truth. The operative element of spiritual maturity is also truth, not experience. Now, before I continue on, here's what I think most of you might be thinking. Is that isn't experience also a major part of how we're formed? 100%. You can't help but say that your experience also forms you. This is why, like counselors, for instance, oftentimes what they'll do is they go back into your childhood, Right? You ever been to counseling? It's like, so let's talk about your dad. You know, you're like, oh man, here we go. 
You go to a counselor's like, so what'd you do whenever you were five? You know, like, I don't know what I was doing when I was five. Well, let's talk more about it. Talk about your play habits, you know? <laughs> why do they do that though? Like, why do they want to go back into, into your childhood? Well, because something happened in an experience that most likely formed you. So I do have, an, uh, my undergrad was in psychology. My minor's in Christian counseling. I did a lot of like work in this in my undergraduate degree. The reason is because something happened in an experience of your childhood and a good counselor, there's a lot of bad ones, by the way, but a good counselor will try to bring you back to that experience and then help you to grapple with the truth of what really happened. So when you're a child, you might think that you were being rejected by your parents whenever they went into the other room to have an adult conversation. And you felt really alone because you're like, yeah, they rejected me, but ultimately they were in there talking because they didn't want to harm you by yelling and fighting and punching each other in front of you. That's a joke, by the way. Maybe. That was actually what was happening. So a counselor brings you back to there and says, you know, is it maybe something different that was going on with your dad or your mom and why they might have like sat you in the room by yourself for that time or, you know, and then we all have those moments like, I guess there is, you know. Good counselors don't try to reframe or redefine the truth in order to blunt the edge of experience. They try to get to the truth and remove the cloudiness of lies that can make our human experience feel unbearable. Counselors that are worth your time must have the fundamental presupposition that the truth is not something to be avoided, it's something to be pursued. Listen to me. The truth is not something you should avoid, it's something you should want at all costs. And you need that presupposition in your soul. I want to get to the capital T truth always because the truth sets us free. Jesus said he would set us free because he's the truth. And so Paul frames our spiritual maturity in the truth. Capital T. One way to think of this is just like Jacob wrestling with God, when we wrestle with the truth, we may walk away limping a bit, but we walk away with our identity secure. You see this? Paul says, you will be established. You will be secure. You won't be tossed to and fro. Why? He says, because you'll grapple with the truth. That's what happens with Jacob. Jacob wrestles with God all night. He gets a new name. And then what? He walks away limping. So it's stung a little bit. But guess what? He's got a brand new name given to him by God. He knows who he is. That's what spiritual maturity looks like. When we grapple with the truth, we wrestle with the truth. We wrestle with God. And then he changes us. So the question is not whether we're going to be shaped by experience. Of course we will. The question is whether our experiences have been framed and formed by the truth or not. And the reason that I harp on this, I promise there's a point, and it is this. The church has been obsessive about experience in the wrong ways. There was a turn about 50 years ago that happened, maybe a little longer, where we stopped arguing theological truth and we started arguing about worship styles. We started arguing about liturgical styles. We started arguing about whether or not the preacher should, you know, preach expositionally or topically, even though that Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers of all time, did both. He didn't only preach line by line. But we started arguing about these things. We started fighting about these things because the experience mattered. You know, should we have dry ice in there to bring in the fog when the cord comes in or not? These things began to be the majority of the internal struggles. And what happened is a world full of human beings, every human being's hungry for truth because they're starved of it, started wanting to have the answers to the truth. We were very busy arguing about the experience and forgetting that the experience is rooted in the truth or else there is no experience. Or let me put it like this. You cannot counterfeit what the world offers with experience. You can't say we're gonna make the experience look a lot like a rock concert and that's gonna be enough. It will always be JV compared to what the world offers unless God is involved. When the spirit shows up, you can have a miserable production quality. But God's there. 
Like think about the children of Israel in the desert. It probably wasn't a great passion concert, but God was present. That's formative. So Paul says wisely that the church matures and builds itself up when we speak the truth in love to one another. We speak the truth in love to one another and then we grow and then we are built up. Now listen to me, when love is only defined by a pleasant experience, you and I will fall into the temptation to neglect the truth because the truth can hurt. But listen to me, being willing to grapple with the truth opens the door for the depth of experience that forms us into mature and healthy people. When we lean into it, that's how we're formed. Gospel culture is that loving environment that we have, that it it provides safety, it provides time, but it also provides truth. And in that mix, we're able to be changed by Jesus because real love is always honest because purporting a lie is not love. And real truth is always loving because real truth seeks to honor people because they're made in the image of God. You see how these work together? That's what Paul's after. All right, for the sake of time, let's close. So what's the call for us this morning? How do we respond to God's call for maturity? Well, I think it could mean a lot of things for each one of us, a lot of different things. But here's what I'm confident through this series is that God will reveal those things to us. So the truth comes and we speak the truth to one another. And here's some of the things that Ephesians begins to cover. It begins to cover the way we speak to one another. And we, and we speak the truth to each other about speaking. <laughs> and then we're able to, let the spirit survey our hearts. Maybe our speech needs to change. Maybe we need to mature in that way. Ephesians talks about sexual purity and we speak the truth to one another about that. We actually say, hey, there's some truth to be had around the sexual ethic. And we speak that truth and we grapple with that. Maybe it's gonna require you to forgive someone. Maybe it's going to require you to address the root of your anger that you've been wrestling with but not telling anybody about, but you know why you're mad and you can't really figure out how to handle it. Maybe it's gonna return you to engaging with your spouse and rebuilding your marriage because you've neglected it. Maybe it's gonna be your parenting. You know, in Ephesians, listen, I'm already not looking forward to it in some ways. We're gonna talk about parenting. And, and Paul actually says, hey, fathers, don't provoke your kids to wrath. Maybe it's gonna be us. Whatever it is, I wanna make this case to you. It's worth it for us to hear the truth and wrestle with the truth because there's freedom there. There's life there. There's maturity there. And there's a movement of maturity that allows for others to come underneath the wing of spiritual mothers and fathers. And the body grows and grows and grows and builds itself up in love. Now, I love how Paul ends because he ends in the way that we all need. And he says this, we hold fast to the head, which is Christ. (laughs) So what's the answer? None of us are the the head of the body. We're different parts of the body. And we hold fast to Jesus who is eager to lead us into the truth. Jesus invites us into that wrestling ring, just like Jacob wrestling with, you know, God. And he wrestles with us in the truth because he loves us. And he invites us in there to help us to grapple with the truth. And God delights in that. But ultimately, Jesus is a good shepherd, a great senior pastor. He leads the church in love. And so this morning, I want to say, let's lean in to answer some of these questions. Not are you gifted, but how are you gifted? Not whether or not you're going to have experience, but are your experiences going to be framed in the truth? If you're going to do that, who are you going to put yourself around? Because some people are just going to affirm your experiences whether they're rooted in the truth or not. It's not the best friends to have. (laughs) You need some friends that say, yeah, man, I'm sorry you experienced that. Is it possible that you were a part of that? Did you contribute to that? Nobody wants that friend sometimes. You're like, hey, man, just, just let me vent. But you need that friend. And then finally, will we run to Jesus for this? Are we going to rely on our own strength? Are we going to go out of here and try to take seven personality tests to figure out our gifts? Are we going to run to Jesus in prayer? (laughs) Those personality tests are great. We need Jesus, right? Amen? Let me pray for us.
Father, I am um, mm, so many things to ask you for. First, I want to thank you that, that we can ask you and that we can know that you hear us right now. I thank you for my friends that are gifted. If they're in you, Lord Jesus, you've given them unique gifts, and I pray that those gifts would be realized, they'd be embraced, they'd be engaged with, they'd be grappled with, they'd be wrestled with this morning. That we'd find ways to serve one another. We'd find ways to create that environment, Lord, where speaking the truth in love becomes the norm because we use our gifts to that end. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give us a humble heart throughout this series to hear your word and to grapple with the truth. To not shy away from it when it stings but to trust that by grappling with the truth, we can find life. Holy Spirit, would you now overcome our resistance to that and give us a great amount of peace to know that you will walk with us through that. And Jesus, I thank you that you descended, you ascended, and that you poured out gifts to all of us. For this very purpose, my God, we pray for your help. We ask it all in your precious name. Amen.